Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new Mainstream Podcast, where we explore the impact of multicultural consumers on marketing and media. I'm your host, Mario Carrasco, and co-founder of Think Now. Excited to introduce our guest today, Rick Kelly, Chief Strategy Officer at Fuel Cycle. Welcome, Rick. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Mario. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, I, fe- I feel like you've been on before because we've had so many Zoom calls, but um, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're finally making it on. Yeah, long-time listener, first-time caller. I think this is uh, the first time I made the trip <laughs> to, to your podcast. So, appreciate it. Nice. So, so before we dive in, Rick, um, I know a little bit about your your career journey, but would love to learn more about how how you made it to to Fuel Cycle. Um, I always like to ask this question, particularly of people in the market research industry, because no one ever plans to be in market research. So, I like to hear I like to hear about the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I had zero plans to uh, to be in market research, and uh, it's a very nonlinear career. You know, it's like at least from my perspective, it's it's been fun and interesting, and I'm very fortunate, you know, to been at Fuel Cycle for going on nine years now, or actually just over nine years. But uh, it didn't start out like super obvious. In fact, I went to grad grad school for uh, political science. I planned to go, you know, get a PhD. I was a little burnt out uh, toward the end of grad school, so I decided just to kind of put that all on hold. And um, yeah, I was going to go, you know, I had plans to just kind of kick it for a couple of years, do something chill, like go to Korea, teach English, stuff like that. But uh, the company I was going to work for just kind of went out of business. And so with uh, two weeks to go, I bumped into a professor of mine in a uh, university kind of cafeteria. And he introduced, uh, he introduced me to a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, Bob Fossen. And uh, okay. turns out, yeah, so the interview process was very quick and about two weeks after uh you know, two weeks from that uh, initial introduction, uh, I was sitting uh, sitting in an office, uh, getting started in a career in market research. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't obvious. You know, I really enjoyed academia. I enjoy research. I enjoy thinking, but I fell in love like with technology. Um, and so you know, I, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy speaking and research. So I started just kind of applying my skill set to, you know, presenting. So like within a year of coming coming into industry, I was presenting at APOR, other conferences, things like that. I'm grateful for a lot of people that, that enabled me to do those types of things and allowed like some, you know, uh, upstart 25 year old kid just <laughs> to, to start, you know, presenting kind of pushing. Um, I took some time off from the industry and went uh, and taught university for, for a year. So I taught uh, political science and research methods, so statistics. Um, and I was so bored of teaching, so I'm glad I didn't get a PhD. I was incredibly bored. Um, and I, again, I enjoyed the opportunity for the most part, but I was so bored because, you know, it was just like a very linear uh, path. And so I ended up uh, taking my family to India for a while, um, where we uh, worked for a technology company, a startup based in San Francisco, classic kind of raise an angel round. It was in the health tech space. And then um, my son was diagnosed with a rare medical condition. We had to move back to the U.S. in a hurry. And uh, so I emailed uh, a friend and asked him what he was working on. And, um, you know, pretty soon I was uh, packing up and driving to New York to, to start a fuel cycle. Oh, wow. Wow. That is uh, that's that's nonlinear. And I didn't know you lived in in India. That's that's pretty cool. I did. You know, it wasn't uh, it was it was a great experience. Um, 
I think having a uh, newborn child in India was more challenging than I anticipated. And there was no yeah. like, ex, you know, expat like package. We had all the expats we knew had like, you know, drivers and people to you know, kind of big mansions and things like that. And kind of showed up with a suitcase full of cash and had to figure out how to live. And so you know, I ended up, uh, you know, driving myself around a lot, which I found super fun. You know, it was just it was an experience. But I lived in Ireland while I was uh, like 19, 20 uh, as well for a couple of years. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed getting out and seeing the world, I think. Very cool. All right. So, so I, and I didn't realize you have been at Fuel Cycle for nine years now. That's yeah. <laughs> time flies. <laughs> yeah, time flies, you know, like uh, it's, it's been a minute. I started, I started here in my like late twenties. So it's, uh, I feel like I've matured a lot uh, during my tenure here. And so did you join when it was passenger or was it already fuel cycle? No, it was, it was a passenger at the time. And it was a okay. little, you know, like essentially when I joined, um, you know, it was a smaller company. It was, uh, we had some, some great people, but they had just re-released like their uh, platform, like technology. So essentially, like as I was coming on board, like our first customers are coming onto the new platform. And, um, you know, like uh, like a lot of companies in the research space, you know, they have they saw a lot of technology company coming, didn't know, you know, had to kind of figure out their identity. And uh, our primary owner was a really fantastic person. His name is uh, Barm Noor Mead. And he was like, hey, we're going to invest in technology. So I said, okay, if we're going to do technology, then we have to build as if we're a technology company. And so I essentially spun up what was um, what became our first kind of customer success group. So, you know, like we we started onboarding self-serving users. Um, you know, I wrote our knowledge, our first knowledge base, like back and forth on the train uh, every day. Um, you know, in about two weeks, just to accommodate like our first users, who, by the way, are still fuel cycle customers, uh, you know, nine years later. Um, wow, but essentially, awesome. like, yeah, it was just it was blood, sweat and tears to kind of you know, help that grow. And uh, we've we've been fortunate to see progress and success, you know, from from that kind of commitment to technology and support it with, uh, you know, great consulting and stuff, too. So I, I think that's a good segue to talk about your, your relatively new role, Chief Strategy Officer. Um, previous to that, you were a Chief Product Officer, which I think it's like both of those titles are relatively new in the market research space, uh, specifically in the C-suite. So tell us how like, well, one, like what does a Chief Product Officer do? What does a Chief Strategy Officer do? And um you know how, how is that how is fuel cycle investing in these types of positions and the c-suite kind of what does it say about about your all like philosophy from a business and technology perspective yeah i think it's a i think it's a really fanta fantastic question um so and i'll say before i jump into it that i have some of the best like business partners and people i've been able to work with for years and years you know, uh, our CEO, CFO, everybody's just phenomenal. And um, so I've had a lot of mentorship and growth and been able to learn from from really great people. And, you know, I started off as essentially like a kind of director level and just kind of kept uh, pushing and grinding uh, to do this. And so, you know, today, um, you know, when we when I took on the CPO role, um, you know, I've been like VP product for a while, but product was an expression of our strategy. And so, you know, the, how we deliver to the market, how we deliver our offering and provide value to our customers is through product development. And it means we have to understand the market, 
translate market needs, customer requirements to you know an engineering spec that turns around and gets delivered back and articulated to the market. And so, you know, for me, I think being a CPO just kind of gave me the ability to build uh, in collaboration with uh, with our team. You know, like essentially build, invest, um, you know, find uh, find new opportunities to provide more value for for customers. And uh, strategy is like a very natural transition, you know, for for me for, from that. And it enables me to take a kind of a wide lens on the business. Um, surprisingly, my my probably my favorite quote on strategy comes from the management theorist uh, Peter Drucker, where he says, uh, "Strategy is a commodity; execution is an art." And so, you know, there's the there's a strategic plan, but uh, it's not like I'm staring at that plan all day. Most of the day, you know, most of my days are spent, you know, uh, dropping down into different parts of the business to help support colleagues or to fine tune things, find new opportunities. The other thing that we're, um, you know, we're really interested in is how do we how do we grow fuel cycle? Um, you know, so we we've been very fortunate to grow, and so I'm looking for new new opportunities. You know, companies that are going to work well with us and work with our business model. You know, we want to be able to provide, uh, you know, to accelerate our mission, um, which is to unleash the power of customer intelligence, and we we do that by uh, decreasing the time. Uh, increasing efficiency and increasing actionability of insights that are delivered to our customers. So how do we scale that? Um, and that's really where I spend a lot of my time. I, I love the quote um, you just said about how product, I, tell me if I'm misquoting you, product is an expression of your strategy. Yeah. Um, that's great. Cause I feel like in our industry and I get caught up in this as well, like, it's always like the new, like what's the next new thing, right? Like it was communities for a while, um, DIY. Now it's AI, yeah. although I don't know what people are really doing with that. They're just <laughs> talking about it. Um, and so it's, it's like it's like product came first and we kind of integrated into our, the strategy, right? Um, in terms of the industry, but you all are like, it's it, creating products based on on client needs, which ironically, right, for an industry that focuses on that from a consumer perspective, we're kind of terrible at yeah. giving our it, clients what they want. It, honestly, <laughs> right? it's, it's the jobs to be done, you know, kind of framework. Um, I don't know what your take on this is. This is, I think it's it's very similar view where, you know, if we take the jobs to be done framework, we'd stop throwing random shit at customers and say, okay, so how do we help you solve the problem you're trying to solve? What you need is less yeah. complexity, not more. Uh, you need more actionability, you know, not like a brand new, like, you know, there's great new technologies that come out, but you need, um, you need some kind of way to deliver uh, confident decision-making to an enterprise without trying to, you know, rearrange the deck chairs every, uh, you know, every couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you know where where we land is similar to you all. Where we um, we invest heavily in technology. I mean, I think that's what's differentiated us in, in our world of multicultural marketing and research. Um, but our our technology is more, or our products are more born out of like our mission, which is elevating the voice of multicultural consumers. Um, and technology is really just a, a conduit for that, right? Um, it took us a little while to get here and realize that. I think we fell into that trap of let's build what everyone else is building. 
Um, but once we realized, okay, we're just trying to get multicultural insights into executive decision-making, how can we do that? Like that's, that's uh, driven our product strategy, which is similar. It's, it's, yeah, it's strategy driving product. Yeah. I, I love that. It's uh it's someplace you land, <laughs> you know, if you haven't figured it out, like I think uh, it's a, it's a maturation process for a lot of, a lot of businesses is that uh, you build things that matter and don't build things that don't matter. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I, AI, like, I feel like we, we, we got to talk about it since everyone's talking about it. Like what's, sure. what's your take on it? Is it gonna, you know, take away our jobs or, or are we yeah. gonna, no more respondents? It's all AI. Yes. It's a great question. So I have, you know, I think, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about AI and, uh, the reason why is because I think it has a potential to fundamentally transform how we deliver value to our customers. I think that it's not there yet. And, you know, there's, there's, um, what's the whole hype cycle, you know, where it's like the, the, we're at the trough, we're going to hit the trough of disillusionment pretty quickly. Um, largely because, you know, tools like chat GPT are the most, you know, the most rapidly adopted, uh, uh, products ever, right? So something like a hundred million users in the first, you know, two months of, uh, chat GPT being available means a lot of people have used it. They found it like a fun toy, but then it's like, okay, so what? Um, and it goes back to the jobs to be done. And uh, uh, so when you think about like the jobs to be done, if we take like market research as a whole, whether it's multicultural communities, panels, you know, brand health tracking, product development, what are we helping our customers do? And this is going to be like a broad take at it, but we're helping them make decisions with confidence, right? It's we're increasing confidence, enabling them to de-risk things. And so in what ways does AI help with that? Well, it has a potential help in many ways, right? So you can accelerate time to insight. So rather than having to wait, you know, a week for or a month for a report to come back, can we simplify that? Can we test more things? Can we evaluate and you know more opportunities as a result of having uh, AI solutions? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, and this is where like I think a lot of people um, where they find a lot of the disillusionment or rightly raised concerns is that you have uh, issues with like hallucination and these large language models. And so they're generating stuff and sometimes it's bullshit, right? And, uh, so, and so are you enabling a company to make more confident decisions if they're not confident in the way that the AI is presenting something? Maybe not, right? And so to me, I, I think that uh, there's a lot, it, it's not as simple as it's gonna change everything. Yes, absolutely. I believe 100% it's going to change everything. I think that enabling to enabling businesses to do that with confidence is the fundamental missing piece that uh, that we're working on and that needs to be solved. Um, you can do that through like user affordances and things today, but there's a there's a big gap there. But I'm all for it. Yeah. No. I, and so to your point, like. I agree, and I and I think I I um I remember a quote of yours at SampleCon. You were, you were talking maybe it was another panel you were a part of, but you were talking about like what's one of market research's biggest competitors or insights biggest competitors or who are we competing against? And you were talking about um, executive intuition. Yeah, you know, um, and I love that. I I. I I think about that, and I think it's also applied to AI because yeah. um, executive intuition it, for multicultural consumers is poor. It's 
really bad. And we see that, you know, we see that in, in, in so many marketing faux pas. I mean, you have Bud Light, (laughs) right? Like the most recent one. Right. Um, but I've played around chat GPT in that context. Like how does it do with multicultural consumers? And with something as simple as, all right, let me see how it does with some traditional Mexican recipes like menudo. You yeah. go ask ChatGPT a menudo recipe, it's like garbage, <laughs> right? And so, <laughs> and so we got to think about like, granted, this is super early days, but ChatGPT is just trained on the content of the internet, and so right. there's inherent bias. I think, I think many times we think like the internet is the repository of all human knowledge and um that that was the idea but it's not it's it's, a repo- it's I mean, also a repository and, and, of all humans suck too you know like everything <laughs> about that that's what that yeah. right that's where it's evolved right i mean like i mean let's take what's happening right now i don't know when we'll publish this podcast but the submarine fiasco oh, yeah. right and like like terrible thing no matter how you feel about the people in there or what happened, like it's like it's a tragedy. But you yeah. look at social media and um, you you would think people are happy. And I'm sure if you ask ChatGPT how people feel about it, it's like it's going to probably say, "Yeah, this is a good thing." Yeah, it's uh, that's exactly it. So I think you know the the internet, and this isn't like a new idea. You know, this is not my my original idea, but the internet you know, is a great enabler. Um, essentially, if you have like, you know, weird like niche interests, not even, I don't even mean like weird, um, uh, <laughs> like you can have very like vanilla weird interests, you know, like uh, what I mean is yeah. like, you can have this wide ranging interest and you find people in a community that you identify with online. And that is one of the most, one of the best and worst things uh, that's happened to society, to society. And so it's a great enabler. Um, and it enables kind of frictionless content, uh, again, which is probably a, like a, a bad thing, which is why like I purposely restrict some of my tweeting cause I don't want, <laughs> I don't want my stream of consciousness <laughs> coming out. I lo- um, but also we, we, I think we know you've made it when there's just like a, all your drafts come out. Yeah, it's that's like, right. Oh, Rick, <laughs> Rick's on an island. <laughs> You know, the whole concept, I'm not, I'm not sure how much we're like, I mean, the whole concept of the fuck you money, that's when you'll know it's like, you know, you can say whatever yeah. I think. I don't, I don't really have that many terrible things, I don't think, but uh, definitely uh, post a lot more memes otherwise. But uh, no, I think AI is the same way. It's going to be, it has a potential to be both the best and worst thing, right? And so we're going to see a number of incredible things coming out of this. So I'm actually not disillusioned with ChatGPT. I use, I'm a power user. I use ChatGPT every single day for a wide variety of tasks. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I find legitimate use cases for it. But um, at the same time, you know, I know what I'm using. It's like using a tool. And there's also a lot of downsides. You know, there's a, a lot of risk associated with, uh, you know, with these AI solutions. So there's going to be trade-offs. I don't think we know what the trade-offs are. And sometimes it feels like, hey, we're all jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, or maybe to we're, we're diving in a submarine without a backup plan down to the Titanic. And that, that's a too, really soon. Too, soon, too soon. Too soon. Really bad metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, and there's really there's no option but to jump, right? And so we'll kind of see where it lands, and trust that 
you know, can kind of build in front of us and everything. And I, so I feel very, very confident about the positive role. There are going to be some negative externalities for sure. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, we, we've chatted um, before. I know you're a power user yourself. Um, I know you're thinking about how that integrates into fuel cycles technology. Let, let, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, I, th- I think one of the things that's really interesting about fuel cycle is how you're approaching data collection. Like, um, I know you've mentioned before about, yeah, there's the insights that you all are generating um, from a traditional market research perspective, but also integrating client data. Like, talk to me about that strategy and then how AI is, is um maybe helping with that and with that, because I imagine that to be a powerful tool in terms of synthesizing disparate data sets. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we've always been a platform and I, like we mean platform very specifically. It's not just a tool, you know, platform becomes like a uh, you know, primary solution that integrates with other point solutions to consolidate, you know, data. The, the intent you know, for us is to be able to help our customers move faster uh, to move more efficiently and to improve actionability. And so we do that by integrating with a bunch of tools. So there's survey tools out there, qualitative tools, all those things are all integrated into our platform. We do build a lot of our own data collection tools. But the idea is that we're consolidating data and building these really robust respondent profiles on fuel cycle. And uh, so you can take you know the results of a concept screen that somebody ran two months ago and then pair that with focus group data and do that seamlessly via like our APIs that we have available. And we've kind of ironed out a lot of the friction for our users in this. But when it comes to customer data, you know, there's so much operational and behavioral data that goes underutilized or isn't tied to insights, right? Because in many cases, insights data lives on its own island. It's external to the business. And I think that's really tragic, to be honest. So what we can do, we have customers today who are pushing data from product analytics tools like Mixpanel or something like that pushing that data into fuel cycle securely, privately, you know, via like APIs, you do this programmatically, so the data is always up to date. So then they can then analyze data, whether that's a discussion board, a focus group, a survey, whatever it might be, based on actual usage data, rather than kind of demographics that may or may not matter, right? So you can say, hey, wait, let's look at our power users, power users and see how they react to this new pricing change rather than say, hey, well, let's look at the difference between males and females and how they're going to react to this pricing change. I'd rather have that behavioral data. So, you know, the whole goal, again, is to enable more confident decision making. And so we, uh, you know, that, that's the intent is me exposing that information to an enterprise, enabling them to integrate means that they're able to make better decisions. And ultimately, like, that's the insights process. Our role is to help customers and executives and, you know, interns or whomever it, whomever it is make better decisions. How big of a, how big of a role is education when it comes to your clients, right? Because so many, you, you know, you talk about the concept, a concept test, right? Um, and, and like in our industry, like that, that's siloed and you make that decision and then you move on. I imagine thinking about your data sets more holistically is a, total paradigm shift for many people like how important is education when when you're onboarding clients or letting them know hey look at all this data is it overwhelming i'm just curious how you guys manage that yeah it's a there's an education process and we are we have to earn the ability to 
you know, be consultative. So we have to execute repeatedly, you know, over and over again to enable those types of conversations. But I think, um, you know, we've, we've learned to do this. And you're absolutely right that machine learning, AI, not even generative AI, but like machine learning solutions are required to analyze that all that data meaningful, meaningfully. Right. So the historical tool for researchers has just been, you know, cross tabs, you know, con contingency tables that may, may or may not, like they, maybe they shouldn't be used in the way that they are because they're just like a, a tool that everybody uses. And it's like, yeah. well, does the data fit the use case? In many cases, it doesn't, but we just use cross tabs because that's the expectation. And, um, you know, you don't want to pull the rug out from underneath people and be like, hey, you're doing anything wrong. Because in many cases, it's right. In many cases, it's good enough. Right. But uh, uh, it is an edu education process for sure. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, well, I think we were talking the Friday before we're, we're about to announce our partnership, which is which I'm excited about. Um, yeah. Virtual. Fist I can talk that. about it. But yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so good timing in terms of the podcast. So, um, yeah. So th it's already been announced once it's there, but airs but um would love to hear your perspective on the partnership and and kind of what made you think about about think now and multicultural consumers yeah so first of all i am so excited about this i think this a you know it's great to partner with uh, like-minded companies and people that are just like good people that's that's like table stakes and uh you know life's too life's too short to work with assholes and so to be able to find people that are opposite you know and are just good people is, is phenomenal um, the second thing is, is that uh, we've always been a, an ecosystem, right? So by doing partnerships and integrations, we said, hey, we're going to do things that we're really exceptional at and that we can have a unique perspective on. But if there's something that we're not the best at, then you know what? We're going to deliver client value by through partnerships and through integrations. And I think this is a great example of a partnership where you have you know, expertise, immense expertise in one of the most important consumer categories uh, in the United States, you know, probably one of the fastest growing audiences and also not like heterogeneous audience, right? It's a very fragmented, different audience, you know? Um, and so I think the fact that, uh, you're focusing on the expertise, you know, on that expertise, the ability to find quality data and information, I think is just absolutely critical to, uh, you know, to, to long-term success for brands. And so for us, we see this as a great opportunity to extend that value and that knowledge. And, and really think, uh, you know, uh, think very highly of the you know, potential for the, for the partnership here. Yeah, agreed. I'm super excited as well. Um, and it's, it's already been great working with you and the team. Um, and, it, and it's really timely, actually, too. I, I, I was just speaking to someone. I haven't seen the report myself, but maybe you saw it. ARF presented some research oh, yeah. on research on about how there's a blind spot uh, for multicultural consumers. Even companies that say that they're multicultural experts, right? Um, yeah. So I love your approach, right? Like you, you all are doing what you do well, um, and partnering with other other companies, whether that's uh, category expert expertise or demographic expertise, like us. That's really, I, I don't want to say the only solution, but that's a, one of the best solutions in terms of bridging that knowledge gap when it comes to multicultural consumers. Yeah. Have you read that report, by the way? It's actually, it's funny you mentioned it because it's sitting in my reading queue. You know, sounds like some, okay. some, probably some good weekend reading uh, for me. But um, yeah, yeah, 
No, I think that's exactly that's exactly right. You know, uh, ecosystems are resilient systems, and uh, so when it comes to business, I'm a big believer in building ecosystems rather than you know trying to be the only tree in the forest. It's uh, you know building that ecosystem means that you have a vibrant approach. You have the ability to adapt and evolve as you know the landscape changes. And uh, I think that you know what you all are doing is a clear area of expertise. It's a real challenge for a lot of brands, real real challenge. And the fact that you're, um, you know, you've invested so much in developing that expertise, I think, is uh, critical to, to long-term success. So I'm, I'm uh, glad to be partnered. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And we're um, running up on on our time here. Um, you're, if people want to connect with you, learn more about Fuel Cycle. What's the what's the best way to to connect with you online? Yeah, well, I unfortunately have the uh, worst email address in the world. It's uh, rkelly at fuelcycle.com. It's, it's been, funny. <laughs> been funny since Space Jam came out, you know. Uh, but uh, so I, I've, I've never noticed that. So now now every time I email you, I'm going to I'm going to think. Yeah, <laughs> well, now, now you, you know, um, but, uh, you know, in addition to that, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. We're going to see my self-censored tweets so they're very boring because uh yeah I, I tend to censor myself more than I, I i otherwise want to but i will but so yeah linkedin twitter email uh pretty open to people reaching out awesome well been great having you on rick um excited to to announce our our partnership and thank you everybody for listening thanks to everyone listening in to get more multicultural insights Check us out at thinknow.com and follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. Final thank you to our producer, Lucas Martinez, who created our intro music and makes our podcast sound great. To email him, reach out to martinez.lucas.a at gmail.com.